This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. The term (coughs) bodhijitta in Pali and Sanskrit means, (coughs) literally it means the awakened heart. And in some teachings, this is understood on two levels. The relative level of bodhijitta is compassion. And this means that it's realizing our practice fundamentally, is never for ourselves alone. But it's always going to be for the benefit of others. And we can even make that understanding the aspiration for our practice. We can undertake our practice with that motivation, that it be for the welfare, the happiness, the awakening of all beings. And in one form or another, we find this understanding of compassion or the awakened heart or the kind heart in um, all of the Buddhist traditions. Uh, The Dalai Lama, not surprisingly, speaks of it a lot. He said, speaking of my own experience, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. When I think about it, I cannot find in myself any specially good quality except for one small thing. That is the kind heart, which I try to explain to others and which I do my best to develop myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me a tremendous inspiration. 
deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. So, if the Dalai Lama feels like he can't really practice bodhicitta, we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves. <laughs> but I, part of part of his comment really resonates. Even though he does get upset or angry, you know, from time to time, deep in his heart, he doesn't hold a grudge against anyone. So can we find that place in ourselves, even as we're navigating, you know, different emotions coming and going? But what's what's at the heart of things? And do we realize how valuable and beneficial the kind heart is? And in the Pali Canon, we find the same sentiment, the same understanding, although expressed in a slightly different way. After the Buddha's enlightenment and he began teaching, when there were 60, the first 60 arhans, you know, in his teaching, so this is uh, how he exhorted them. He said, go forth, O bhikkhus, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, benefit, and happiness of people and devas. Let not two go by one way. Teach the Dharma, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, excellent in the end. Proclaim the noble life, altogether perfect and pure. Work for the good of others, you who have done your duty. So we find that this understanding of compassion, whether it's the initial motivation or what we come to in the course of our practice, or we experience as the fruit of our practice, we find that the kind heart is really at the center of it all. So this is relative bodhicitta because it involves the concept of beings, you know, of helping beings, serving beings. The more ultimate level of bodhicitta is the empty, aware nature of the mind itself. And this is talked a lot about in some uh, particular Buddhist traditions, in the Tibetan tradition and in some of the Zen traditions. And there's one teaching about these two that I find particularly encouraging. It says that when compassion and emptiness are both present, enlightenment is unavoidable. So it's a very clear direction on what it is that we should be cultivating, what it is that we should be realizing. Now a transforming and ongoing realization and practice is something that we've talked about is that this relative and ultimate bodhicitta, compassion and emptiness, are not two separate things. But we find as our practice matures, <clears throat> they are really expressions of each other. So there's one teaching by one of the great Tibetan Dzogchen masters, Shapkar, which expresses <clears throat> 
the union expresses beautifully the union of the kind heart and the wisdom of emptiness. So he taught that the mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal. Okay, so we're talking about our minds. The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. So tonight I'd like to at least begin talking about these three aspects, both what they mean and how we can actually experience them, how we put them into practice. So how do we understand the term intrinsically empty? And for many people, the word empty or emptiness in English is not all that appealing. You know, say something is empty, it might suggest sort of a gray vacuity or a blankness or a blandness, a blank nothingness. But the Pali and Sanskrit word for emptiness is shunyata. And in Buddhism, this word has tremendously profound meanings. We'll talk a little bit about some of the meanings and ways we can understand and realize, experience emptiness from uh, several different perspectives. Perhaps on the simplest level, we can understand emptiness to mean the lack of self-centeredness. Now, usually we think of self-centeredness as being someone's personality problem. You know, we might think of someone as being very self-centered and you know, think that perhaps they should go see a therapist about it. But self-centered really has a more fundamental meaning. It's when we create or hold a sense of self to be at the center of our lives, self-centered. Our lives become self-centered. The sense of self then becomes the reference point, you know, for all that we think, all that we sense, all that we do. It's the idea or felt sense that there is someone behind experience to whom it is all happening. And so very commonly in our lives, we go through our lives with the sense of my body, my thoughts, my feelings, I'm doing, I'm acting. Just in the normal way we live, <coughs> we are creating this felt sense of an I at the center <coughs> of our lives. So mostly we're living in this gravitational field, the gravitational field of the self-center. And it's interesting just to pay attention to how our lives unfold and we can see that our hopes and our fears and our wants and our desires and our worries and our work and our relationship, 
almost all the aspects of our lives revolve around this sense of self, this self-center. And it's odd, because even as we know things to be continually changing, still we've created uh, this reference point. But through practice, through a sustained, wise attention to our experience, to our lives, through the power of mindfulness, of concentration, of wisdom, we begin to leave this self-referential orbit, and we are gradually drawn into the the gravitational field of the Dharma. Rather than revolving around the gravitational field of self, we get glimpses of the zero center of emptiness, rather than the self-center of I and mine. Just all of this was uh, captured very succinctly uh, by the great Sufi poet Rumi. He said, live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. So we do have an address here, and I'm going to talk more about this. But can we live in the nowhere that we come from? the zero center of emptiness, even though we have an address here and we're living and acting from that place. So this is the challenge of living in the world, you know, of our ordinary conventional reality. It's the world of concepts and language and subject and object of self and other And at the same time, even as we're doing all this, we understand and we realize the more ultimate truth of emptiness of self. I think one teaching which I've mentioned before, but it's so good. I'm going to repeat it. It's it's this teaching of uh, one Tibetan teacher. I don't even know who said it. when somebody asked him, is the self real? And he said, it's not that you're not real. We all think we're real, and that's not wrong. But you think you're really real. You exaggerate it. <laughs> and that just captures the two levels. You know, we are real, and we do live in this world of relative reality of self and other and subject and not. So all of that is real. <laughs> but not really real. You know, we exaggerate it. And so this is our challenge, this is our task. How, how do we come to understand, <coughs> not only understand the two levels, but how to integrate the two levels? You know, so that we're actually living it in a full way. So we're all, I think, quite familiar with living on the relative level. That's, that's not hard to understand. I want to talk about how we can experience the emptiness of self. So that it goes from just being, you know, a Buddhist philosophical concept to something that 
we are actually experiencing in our lives. So the first way, we often get an intimation of emptiness of self in our ordinary lives. You know, maybe many or most of you have experienced one time or another when we enter into just an effortless flow of being. And it could be in different activities. You know, it probably happens a lot in music or in sports. You know, in sports they talk about being in the zone. Uh, or it might be in work. Where things seem to be going on without any effort at all. Things seem to be going on without any sense of self in doing it. We're just in the flow of the phenomena. And everything seems to be going on much better for not having that sense, that contraction of self. So it's to pay attention if those moments should come or those experiences should come just in our ordinary lives. is to kind of pay attention to what's going on there and what characterizes this sense of effortless flow. I think we'll get a sense of what selflessness means. We can also be reminded of emptiness of self by different of our teachers, either by their words or by their presence. You know, some, some teachers are just radiate that. And uh, one of our teachers who I've spoken of a lot, you know, her name was Deepa Ma, just this, this most extraordinary being. You know, and she had suffered a lot in her lives and in her life and had come to you know, the deepest and most profound realization. And what characterized her and what the experience was of being with her was just of this vast emptiness and unconditional love. And so that's what was there. You know, so it was tremendously inspiring. And I remember one time in particular she was teaching, she was visiting here and teaching at the retreat center, and just watching how she came in and bowed to the Buddha image. Just that was a transmission, because it was like emptiness bowing to emptiness or wisdom bowing to wisdom, or love bowing to love. There was such a palpable sense of no one there, and yet all these qualities manifesting. You know, so sometimes it's like we can catch it a little bit just from being with somebody like that. And it's also challenging because both being with her or other other great masters who really, <coughs> you know, are, are manifesting in this way, their emptiness and openness and acceptance, all of that, seems to reflect back in a very vivid way our own places of selfing, you know, of holding in contrast. So it's both tremendously inspiring to be with them and it also reveals a lot about ourselves and the places where we're caught. 
So sometimes we experience this emptiness self just when we get in the flow. Sometimes it's, you know, we get an intimation in the experience of some of these really great beings. We also experience emptiness, emptiness of self, lack of self-centeredness in our meditation practice. And in a way, that's what our practice is all about. I mean, have you had times, either in your sitting or in walking, where it really all seems to be happening by itself? You know, there's a certain strong momentum of mindfulness where the mindfulness is working by itself. It doesn't take effort at that point. So the mindfulness going along and there's just this flow of mind-body processes. We can really get a sense of, yes, there's no one really here. It's just this process of mind and body, of empty phenomena rolling on. We begin to see that there is no existent thing in our experience that the word self refers to. And so we we begin to understand that the term is fine, and we use that term, it's not a problem with the, the word, but we begin to understand that it's not a word that refers to something self-existing, but rather it's a designation for this whole changing mind-body complex. So you might think of self, it's like a big summer storm. You know, there's wind and there's rain and there's thunder and there's lightning. There's no storm apart from those elements. Storm is simply a word, simply as a designation for that whole complex of phenomena. So just as there's no storm separate from those changing elements, there's no self. Self is a designation in just the same way. There's no self apart from this flow of changing, you could call them aggregates or the sense spheres. And when we look even deeper in our meditation, we see that even these specific elements you know, whether it's the wind or the rain or in terms of the mind-body, the different aggregates, that each of these, each of the elements themselves are insubstantial. And likewise in our meditation, there are times when the mindfulness gets strong enough that we are really seeing the incredible rapidity of change. You know, there's something which many of you have heard me talk about, I call them NPMs, which are noticings per minute. You know, and usually in our lives, our NPMs, um, they're pretty low. You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe we notice 10 things a minute. But in practice, you know, when we're really cultivating a moment-to-moment mindfulness, the NPMs go way, way up. And so even within one breath, we see that's not one thing, it's so many different sensations, you know, many, many sensations within one breath, within a half breath, within a sound. 
And as the practice goes on and matures, we can drop into that place where we're noticing many, many things arising and passing very quickly. So again, in seeing that rapidity of change, we see nothing lasts long enough to be called self. Neither the object nor the mind knowing it. It's all arising and passing so quickly. So this is another way of experiencing emptiness of self. <clears throat> there was a yogi from Colorado. This goes back many years. She was one of the very first uh, people to go to Burma. In the days when it was closed, I think she only went, you know, and you could only go for a week at a time. Uh, but then she practiced there. So this was... It was probably in the late 60s or quite quite early on. And, and she came back and she was teaching a little bit. Her name was Jocelyn King. She had this one great teaching. She said, it's better to stand on the firm ground of emptiness than the quicksand of somethingness. Better to stand on the firm ground of emptiness than the quicksand of somethingness. You know, but how often are we getting lost in the quicksand of our emotions and our thoughts and all the stories and dramas that we tell ourselves, forgetting their empty, selfless nature? You know, we're lost a lot in that quicksand, and we are often sinking into it. There's yet another way of appreciating and realizing and understanding what emptiness means. Because again, although in English the word may not indicate uh, the magnitude of its meaning with respect to understanding, you might even think of for using the Pali Sanskrit word, shunyata, because it's rich in meaning. And so that's why there are all these different ways or different uh, avenues of approaching it. So another powerful realization that we come to regarding <coughs> emptiness or shunyata is seeing that things are not simply amenable to our will. And this is another meaning of shunyata or anatta, selflessness, which is the ungovernability of phenomena. As is very obvious, although in some amazing way we keep forgetting it, we cannot hope with any chance of success to say, may my body not age. It's not subject to our will. May my body not get sick. May I only have pleasant mind states. Wouldn't that be nice? You just, uh, you just come into the hall, okay, in this sitting, may everything be pleasant. We can say it. <laughs> but it's the understanding that <clears throat> 
These conditions are not subject to our will. Everything arises out of appropriate causes and conditions. And when the causes and conditions are there, then the phenomena arise. And if the causes and conditions are not there, no matter what we wish, it's not going to arise. The thought made the water boil will never produce a cup of tea. We have to understand the causes for the water to boil, have some effective means to raise the water temperature. That's what's going to create the cup of tea. So it's interesting to apply this in our lives, particularly in those moments when things are very obviously not conforming to your will. So we really are paying attention to the truth of this. Because again, we can hear all of these words and <clears throat> agree or disagree, whatever, on an intellectual, conceptual level. The transformation happens when we apply the words to our lives and look for ourselves. Is this true or not true? So it's in our own experience of them that they have transformative value and not otherwise. So pay attention. And again, here it's very obvious when things are clearly not happening the way we want them. You know, it may be some condition or illness of the body. So clear, this is not amenable to our will, it's ungovernable. It might be difficulties in a relationship that you don't want to be happening, but the conditions are there for them to be arising. You know, you might <coughs> get to the airport two hours early and your flight is canceled. I've seen people at airports go nuts as if it's a personal affront. You know, as if this was done to them. It's personalizing very impersonal conditions. So there's something very profound about this with regard to our understanding and realization. And that is seeing the connection or seeing how ungovernability is the connecting point or the nexus between dukkha and freedom. That it's ungovernability of things that actually can lead in these two opposite directions. It can lead to dukkha and it can lead to freedom. We experience dukkha precisely because things are ungovernable. They're outside of our control. And so all of these ha things happen in our lives, like aging and like illness and like death and like so many of the things we don't want to be happening. They're happening because they're ungovernable. It's just the nature, it's the Dharma unfolding. 
So it's precisely the ungovernability, which is the source of the dukkha. If we could govern it, oh, may this not happen and we'd be fine. And at the same time, this very understanding of ungovernability, when rightly understood, leads to freedom. Because the more deeply we see it, the more deeply we realize it, then we no longer identify with what's arising, whether it's in the body or the mind. We're no longer taking it to be self understanding its selfless nature. And so, you know, when the Buddha said bhikkhus, and that's, remember he's talking to everyone walking on the path, bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it. Meaning, let go, let go of the attachment, the identification. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. So do you see the connection? It's precisely from understanding the ungovernability that we understand these things are not self, not mine, not I. And as we realize that and deeply integrate it in our understanding of what's arising, then the very same ungovernability which had led to dukkha actually leads to our freedom, to our enlightenment. As one uh, Sri Lankan monk put it, no self, no problem. You know, and that's really the key. Okay, so we can experience emptiness or get a taste of it, an intimation of it when we enter the flow, even for short periods of time, we're in the zone. We get a taste of it or an intimation of it when we're with people who are manifesting it, you know, really beautifully. We get an understanding of it in our meditation practice as we're seeing the changing, the, the incredibly rapid change of phenomena. So we see that nothing lasts long enough to be self. We get an understanding of emptiness of self through seeing, both in our lives, our ordinary lives, and in our meditation practice, the ungovernability, that things happen out of causes and conditions, not because we want them or don't want them to be a certain way. So we see the selfless nature of it. Certain Buddhist traditions emphasize yet another way of <coughs> touching or experiencing uh, this aspect of emptiness. And that is seeing the empty, space-like nature of the mind. And this is talked a lot about in some of the Tibetan and Zen traditions. So I just want to read one, one of these teachings, but there are many. This was from an 11th century Tibetan yogini, her name was Mechig Labdron. And she was a great, she was a great yogini. She said the defining characteristic of mind is to be primordial, primordially empty like space. 
This realization of the nature of mind includes all phenomena without exception. This mind of ours is empty and clear like the depth of space. Okay, as you listen to this, listen and be really looking into your own mind. She's really giving an instruction for how to understand our minds. Right? So don't listen to it as philosophy. It's like it's a chance to understand something about our minds. This mind of ours is empty and clear like the depths of space. Relax in that natural state, free of fabrication. Right now you have the opportunity. Look for the essence of mind. This is meaningful. When you look at mind, there's nothing to be seen. In this very not seeing, you see the definitive meaning. This old lady has no instructions more profound than this to give you. So I'm going to talk some more about this because it is a profound instruction. Well, I'll, I'll, one more teaching just on this uh, was from the great uh, Indian adept Padmasambhava, who brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. He said, It is certain that the nature of mind is empty and without any fab foundation whatsoever. And again, look, your own mind is insubstantial like the empty sky. Look at your own mind to see whether this is so or not. So this way, or this kind of teaching, is not so much the deconstruction of a sense of self, you know, through uh, seeing the aggregates or the sense spheres and seeing as you take our experience apart, there's no self to be found. This is rather an understanding of emptiness of self through the direct recognition of the mind's empty nature. When we look for the mind, there's nothing to find. But a lot of care is needed here. This is a very profound teaching to look at the nature of mind, but a lot of caution and care is needed here. Because it's easy to create some idea of emptiness, and then we're caught by the idea. Or to confuse it, to confuse the realization of emptiness of self with some subtle created aspect of mind, and then becoming attached to that. So I'll just give you a couple of examples. There was a yogi on one retreat who was experiencing a great spaciousness of mind. The mind had just become incredibly spacious. And this person went to the teacher and describing it, and it just, you know, it felt, it felt open and empty uh, and wonderful. And the teacher said, rather than understanding emptiness as spaciousness, it's better to understand emptiness as groundlessness. Do you see the difference? The spaciousness, even though it felt empty, 
was still a created space of mind. It was a conditioned state of mind. It was very open, very wide, and relatively empty, but it was still something. Groundlessness suggests... Groundlessness is like channel zero. So it's just to be aware of you know, the ways in which we can mistake one thing for another. This is from Hui Nang, the sixth Zen patriarch, who was, you know, one of the great Zen masters. He said, good and wise friends, do not listen to me explain emptiness and then become attached to emptiness. Above all, do not cling to emptiness. If you meditate with a vacant mind, you will become fixated on a blank emptiness. You see the caution? So it, it's very easy to, to fall into this. And part of our practice is just you know, getting caught in these more subtle aspects and then in one way or another, either through advice or our own practice, we let go of that attachment or clinging. So the challenge of this of coming to this direct realization of the emptiness of mind. Uh, The challenge of it was captured in a couple of lines by the Polish Nobel Prize winning poet. Uh, It's hard to say her name, Wisława Simborska. And there's some wonderful, wonderful poems translated in English, but in one of them she said, There is so much everything that nothing is hidden quite nicely. You know, so we're so entranced by the somethingnesses of our experience, even the subtle somethingnesses of this spacious mind. There's so much everything that nothing is hidden quite nicely. So this. What does this nothing mean? There's a very uh, powerful Zen dialogue uh, that really can have the power to awaken something in us. When you listen to it, it's easy to hear it on the level of being a Zen witticism, you know, because there's, there's a certain cleverness to it. But that's missing the point. I mean, really, as you listen to it, uh, connect with the meaning, because there's something very liberating about what's being expressed. So as most of you know, Bodhidharma is the great being who brought uh, Buddhism from India to China. And it said, you know, he lived in a cave for how many years just facing the wall and uh, lots, lots of stories of Bodhidharma, who's you know supposedly this really fierce master. So then, the person who was to become his disciple, but not yet, his name was Huayka. He came and he was begging Bodhidharma to give him some teachers. He was suffering so much; he was so distressed. And at first, Bodhidharma just ignored him. As the story goes, and 
maybe hesitate to even mention it. <laughs> but as the story goes, he cut off his arm <laughs> to demonstrate to Bodhidharma that he really meant it. <laughs> yeah, he was sincere about his practice. So we take a slightly milder approach here. <laughs> but that's the, that's the intensity with which we should be concerned about these things. You know, really, what is the nature of suffering and what is the nature of freedom? So, Hueka says to Bodhidharma, finally, you know, Bodhidharma comes and agrees to talk to him. <coughs> and Hueka says, my mind is distressed, please pacify it. And Bodhidharma says, present me your mind and I will pacify it. And Hueka says, I've searched for it everywhere. I've searched for this mind everywhere and I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, there, it's already pacified. Right? In the not finding, the, the non-findability of it. Look for the mind and it can't be found. That's that zero, channel zero. It's not to be found, as, as one teacher said, the not finding is the finding. That's what's to realize. And in that, it's already pacified. And I've used this dialogue often just in my ordinary life. I can be going for a walk and maybe there's something in my mind that's a little troubling or distressing in one way or another. And when I think of it, so I'm so familiar with it, all I need is the, is the final tagline already pacified. Right? One could go through the whole dialogue just to remind one of what it's about. And you look for the mind, it can't be found. When it can't be found, it's already pacified. And it's immediately the mind is released from whatever that particular little dukkha was. So this is the liberating power of realizing or touching, experiencing emptiness, even if it's just for a few moments at a time. So in all these ways, you know, from all of these different perspectives, and they're from different traditions, you know, and the different traditions talk about it in one way or another, but it all comes down to the realization of emptiness of self. That this strong belief we have and strong view of there being some concrete, substantial self around which everything revolves, to see that that's the basic illusion. The, there's a writer uh, who's whose pen name is Wei Wu Wei. I think he was actually English or Irish. He lived in, in uh, Asia, in Hong Kong for many years, and he wrote many things, and he clearly had some realization because his writings are always pointing to this understanding in very clear ways. So he talked about just this point. He said, the notion of self or living from that place is like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. 
so that's what we're doing. We're like these dogs barking up a tree, barking up a tree that isn't there. So in just all these different ways that I mentioned, we may begin to get a taste or a sense or an inclination or an intimation of what this means, what emptiness, selflessness means. But as Shabkar pointed out, you know, in that original verse, the nature of the mind is not only intrinsically empty, it's also, as he said, naturally radiant or luminous. And radiant here refers to the innate clarity of the knowing, cognizing capacity. So the mind is the empty nature is often described like space, but space doesn't know anything. So the mind is some, it's space-like, but it also has this cognizing capacity. That's the capacity to know things. So Buddha Dasa, one of the great Thai monks of the last century, and very, uh, had a very broad and wide understanding, he said, we should really call mind emptiness, but because of the awareness faculty, we call it mind. So that's kind of the understanding of its empty space-like nature, but it is also has this capacity to know, to cognize. So this union of emptiness and clarity, and they're not two separate things, they're, they're completely unified. We might call it the cognizing power of emptiness. Again, it was captured in the first couple of lines of a book, which I had high hopes for, but actually didn't get past the first page or two. Uh, the name of the book was The Nothing That Is. And the book was a history of the number zero. And the, the title just, how could one not buy that book? The Nothing That Is. And the first two lines, just expressed exactly what we're talking about here. It said, look at zero and you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. So just as a description of the nature of mind, you look for it, you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. So this is not something, this nature of mind, this union of emptiness and clarity, emptiness and awareness, this is not something that we're lacking and we need to find. It's something we need to recognize and come back to as we let go of the subtle attachments which are obscuring it. So this I think this talk is going to have to go into Thursday night because there's a lot. But there's one aspect here which uh, I found very interesting. Okay, so if the mind is 
intrinsically empty and naturally radiant. What's our problem? You know, why aren't we just living in that understanding? The problem is that there are things that are obscuring this understanding, and this is expressed in all of the different traditions. Again, the, the different traditions use different language to point to it, but they're pointing to the same thing, and it's an extremely uh, important aspect of our minds to understand. So in the Pali Canon, there's a, a very well-known teaching where Buddha says, luminous bhikkhus is the mind, and it is defiled by incoming or visiting defilements. Luminous bhikkhus is the mind, and it is freed from incoming or visiting defilements. So what does this mean? It means that the defilements obscuring the intrinsic emptiness and radiance, knowing capacity of mind, what obscures that are visiting defilements. They're not things that are inherent to the mind. They're things that come when the conditions are there. So this is important. It's not... In this way, we might say there's no original sin. Right? The nature of the mind is empty, is luminous, but it is defiled by visiting defilements. So we need to understand that. As Suzuki Roshi said, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, everything is perfect, but there is a lot of room for improvement. So that's the same, it's the same understanding. Yeah, the nature of the mind, the inherent nature of the mind, you could say is perfect, or empty, or radiant. And there's a lot of room for improvement, precisely because of the habit patterns of the defilements. This is from the very great Tibetan master, Longchenpa. He said, the fact of primordial Buddha nature does not contradict the fact that there is much to purify. These teachings are so important because it's so easy, and I've seen it happen in many situations, where people are holding on to one understanding of, oh, it's all empty, there's nothing to do. The mind is inherently pure, no need to practice. And that becomes a huge danger, because it's not realizing that, yes, on one level, the nature of the mind is empty and is luminous, and yet the defilements come. The mind is perfect, and there's a lot of room for improvement. So, uh, person probably who just expressed this very clearly was an 11th century Zen master, Korean. His name was Shinul. He had a wonderful frame for his teachings. He called it sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. 
So he saw the possibility of awakening suddenly to this empty, radiant nature of mind, at the same time recognizing the need for cult gradual cultivation. You know, and so many people take that initial realization to be oh, done now, finished. So this is what Chanul said, although we have awakened to original nature, beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly. I think you'll like this next line. Hindrances are formidable, and habits are deeply ingrained. So how could you neglect gradual cultivation simply because of one moment of awakening? So it's acknowledging, yeah, the awakening, awakening to this deep, profound, understanding of emptiness is possible and it changes the way we understand things and then we need to gradually cultivate our practice because their hindrances are formidable um, habits are deeply ingrained so another way just of expressing it is to realize that yes at all times Everything that arises is selfless, but it's not always free, you know, and the freedom comes from the realization, the ongoing deepening realization of the emptiness of self. Intrinsically empty, the mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, this aware knowing quality, ceaselessly responsive. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insighthour.